Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Head Games Podcast, the newest member of the game podcast family. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Along here with me is Jonathan Carter. Hello, Jonathan. Hey. I am super excited to be doing this cast with you. I hope you're as excited as I am right now. I think we have so much to share with our listeners. We're going to accomplish a lot, and we're going to accomplish a lot today. We have so much to get through. I don't want to waste any time. I want to start with kind of a little bit of the genesis of why we're here today and and kind of what we're hoping to accomplish. So you probably are coming to this cast via my other podcast, The Game Podcast, at least at first. I, I think probably our first wave of listeners are coming from The Game Podcast, which is a podcast about competitive Magic the Gathering. And as part of The Game Podcast, every week, we take questions from our Patreon supporters. And, you know, these cover very specific questions. You know, should I do this in this situation? And they cover very broad questions where they ask about our backgrounds and personality traits. But one trend that kept coming up was that people were asking very, I guess I want to use the term psychological questions. They, they were really getting to the root of, you know, their thought process in magic and their general thoughts to preparation and their anxieties, their fears, all these different psychological concepts. So I said to myself, if only there was someone who works in this field that I could go to who could maybe bring some clarity to all these questions because I didn't feel prepared to answer them. And that is where Mr. Jonathan Carter comes into the picture. So Jonathan, why don't you talk a little bit about your background? Tell our listeners who you are, what you've done. Give us give us your whole story. Give us everything right now from, from birth to this moment. <laughs> a lot of years ago in New York, I woke up one day. No, um, <laughs> so I come to this as a listener of the other podcast. And I was probably incessantly at times answering these questions that would pop up in Discord because I can't help myself when people ask questions around this. But what I do uh, day job is I work as a contractor for the United States Army, and I teach people how to use their brain better so they perform better. My background's in psych. I was in undergrad. I've spent my life in athletics and competition. I love competing. And my last semester, I just happened upon this cool seminar about sports psychology. I had no clue what it was until that moment. And in that class, I realized I could combine my undergrad degree with something that I love doing, which is sport. And that's really cool when you have no idea what you're going to do with your life. Yeah, for sure. I, I think like combining your interests, your loves with what your career is, that's the key to happiness for me. It's, it's brought such a change in my day-to-day lifestyle. And it sounds like it's something you accomplished fairly early on in your career. Yeah, I got pretty lucky. So I got into this class. I was taking a couple weeks. It was really interesting. So I just started Googling sport and performance psych graduate degree. Denver sounded like a really cool program. The city of Denver seemed really cool because I was from New York. I've never been West. Love Denver. Yeah, I applied. I got in. I went there. And then day one-ish, like the first week we were there, the there's this uh, association of applied sports psychology, which is like our governing body. They do a conference every year. And it just so happened that my professors were a big deal and they were at it. And they said for all of us, like that was going to be our first week. We're just going to go to this conference. And I met 
some recruiters that do recruiting for the job I have now. And so day one in grad school, I found out that people did sports psychology with the military. My dad, my grandpa, a bunch of people have been in the military. So I, I very much value the sacrifice those folks make. And I thought, man, this is really cool. Like I could do this job, but with the army and just thinking about the stakes that they have compared to an athlete. So like, yeah, I love competition. I said that and, and athletes compete. And at the end of the day, they get to go home for sure. You can apply these skills in any competitive environment. But for me, the idea that I could take this same knowledge base and apply it to the army who has like really, really, really high stakes was sweet. So not only did I luck into that as a study, but basically day one in grad school, I was like, man, that's a job I'm going to get. Well, that's a, that's a really poignant way to look at what you do. There certainly are dramatically elevated stakes when you're contrasting something like the army and something like a game of Magic the Gathering or any of the other multiple forms of competition we're going to talk about here on our cast. But you, you've done both, right? You've been in, in the broader esports world as well beyond just the military experience you've had, right? Yeah. If you fast forward a few years, so I'm out of grad school. I've been doing this army gig for a couple of years. I've played video games my whole life. And then I found out uh, like SK Gaming in League of Legends was, I would say, one of the first organizations to actually bring a sports psych professional onto their staff. And there was an article on it. And again, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like people are combining this field that I'm already in and working in with video games. Man, that's sweet. I got to get in on that. So I reached out, started talking to different people and I've done a bunch of side work with any big esport you can imagine, um, whether it's flying out to LA to work with some teams or working with some athletes remotely. It turns out a performance is a performance is a performance. It doesn't matter if you're playing magic, if you're playing a video game, if you're in the army, if you're an Olympian going for a gold medal, we're all humans and our brain is either getting in our way or helping us out in all those situations. And the same skills that work for an Olympic gold medalist can work for you in whatever it is you're doing on a daily basis. This work is so fascinating to me. I have to, I have to back you up and ask some questions about it just because I love League of Legends more as a watcher than a competitor, mostly because I'm awful at League <laughs> of Legends. And you know, it, it's very hard for me sometimes to do tasks where I don't, I feel like I lacked capacity to be great at mm -hmm. something. So I'll, I'll back away pretty quickly, but I do play League of Legends from time to time. But I want to know, like, so you're working closely with a League of Legends org. What's, what's your League of Legends skill level? Like, does it matter? Are you particularly skilled? Does it matter that you're not particularly skilled or you are particularly skilled? Like, how does that influence your work in that field? It has influenced it differently back when it first started to be a thing to, to if you compare it to today. So I am decidedly average at League of Legends and I don't put in a ton of time, much to the bemoaning of some friends of mine who wish I would. And when it was first a thing that esports organizations would bring on outside professionals, whether it be coaches or in my case, a sports psych consultant, there was very much like part of the interview was, well, how good are you at League of Legends? Like, what's your, like, what's your rank? What, what division are you in, et cetera? And it took a lot of work, actually, to explain to people, look, this isn't how, how sport works. You have people who are good coaches who aren't like Olympians. If it was as easy as thinking right, 
to become an Olympian, then like everyone in my field would be an Olympian. And that's just simply not the case. Even in the beginning, the way they hired coaches, it'd be like, oh, wow, you used to play League of Legends? Cool, you're a coach now. And it turns out there's a lot more to coaching than just playing a game. So I'd say back in the day, it was a, a problem and people have, have changed their minds a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. But I, I could see that in a very nascent field, there was probably a lot of that, a lot of distrust to people. Well, how could how could this person help us? They don't even know, you know, they don't understand when to go to Baron. How can we possibly take any advice from this person? Right. But thankfully, there's a broader set of issues that you're able to assist with. What what other esports have you worked with teams on? Most recently, Overwatch, done some work with CSGO. I've talked a little bit to some Smash Brothers pros, Halo. Interesting. Is is there one field when it comes to esports that you'd like working in more than any other? Or is it just kind of, is it, is it more you're doing a lot of very similar things and the background of what esport is involved is kind of secondary to your own work? There's a lot of overlap. Overwatch recently was really interesting just because the the nature of how they compete is you can sub players between maps. And that's something right. that doesn't exist in a lot of other esports. So just being able to work with people who were on the quote unquote bench and then knowing that they were like a, a substitute player and they were potentially going to come in, that, that does add a little bit of intricacy in terms of just being ready to perform, but you're not on stage or being on stage and knowing that you might get subbed out because someone else is better at a different map for a different team comp or something. It was a lot more like traditional sport, but having worked at esports for a bit, I hadn't encountered that for a while. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about how that changes, you know, everything about a player's preparation and how they have to be ready to come into situations cold. And, you know, the rest of the team has been playing for two maps already. And now you're thrust into what's already either a good or a bad communication situation. And there's a whole new set of wrinkles going on. Yeah. Halo was a little different too. Um, so in Halo, the coach, okay, it's not as big of an esport anymore, but uh, the coach is actually on comms too and can communicate with the players. And in a lot of esports, like people talk about shot callers and you got to have this good shot caller on your team and you need to train them to do it. It was a stigma for a long time of actually talking to players during scrimmages, whereas in Halo, they're just so used to it. So it was this battle you had to face in League of Legends of, no, 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 it's really good for your coaches to talk to you during scrims because then you get their voice in there in your head. And then when it's game time, you're like, you've got that in the back of your head and you know what you're doing. Interesting. So I find your esports background so fascinating, uh, just because it's something that I'm completely an outsider in. Like I, I, I don't have any desires or endeavors to be a top competitor in League of Legends or any of the other esports I follow. You know, I, I watch a lot of fighting games, uh, a lot of Street Fighter Five. I'm into basically whatever the fighting game flavor of the month is. So I've been watching Dragon Ball Fighters right now and and playing a little bit too, but. Enough that I know my limitations and that I'm not about to turn pro in any of these games. So I feel like I have to give a little bit of my background now, because like I said, I think a lot of our listeners will first come over from the game podcast, but I hope to reach a lot of new listeners as well. So I want them to know a little bit about myself. So I think the most important thing that I want to be very, very clear about is that I have literal no idea what it what I'm talking about when it comes to psychology <laughs> or, or any kind of optimization process that Jonathan might be saying he's seen in his experience. You know, I, I'm just a guy and 
I'm a guy who's competed in a bunch of things and and had some success, but I don't have the same training Jonathan does, which I think is a very important distinction to make at the start of this cast. Uh, so while we may disagree from time to time, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of backup to his point of view. So I, I'll concede that right now. <laughs> what I do is. I podcast, but before I was a professional podcaster, as I refer to myself now, I was a lawyer. You know, I think the competition aspect of lawyering is a little overplayed in the media. It's not law and order. We don't battle in courtrooms all the time and scream at each other, but there's some of that there. There's there's a little bit of competition embroiled in, in being a lawyer. And maybe more interesting to a lot of folks who are outsiders to the legal profession is that law school is an incredible competition. It's an absolute crucible. And your performance in law school very much determines a lot of the opportunities you're going to have post-law school. Uh, you have to be at the top of your class to get certain interviews and to have certain opportunities and to meet certain people. All of these things, the door is kind of open to you when you do very well just in your class ranking in law school. I succeeded in that endeavor. I did very well in law school. I had a lot of opportunities open up to me. So that's that's another competition I participated in. I have competed at very high levels of Magic the Gathering. You know, I've never been a platinum pro or a gold pro as as those systems are defined, but I've competed at a bunch of pro tours. I've done well. I've got a Grand Prix top eight, you know, a, a little bit of competition here and there. So I know what the top level of the Magic the Gathering pro scene looks like. Beyond that, I have been a poker player for a period in my life. Uh, I dropped out of college way back in the early 2000s. Yes, I'm kind of old. Uh, but I, I dropped out of college in the early 2000s because the poker boom was happening and I saw an opportunity to make a ton of money. So I completed in a lot of uh, poker tournaments. Most of my winnings were from tournaments. I played a little bit of cash. Uh, I'm probably a lifetime losing cash game player, uh, but very successful lifetime in tournaments and have felt the pressure of competition, have played games with hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake on my decisions. So I, I think I have a experiential background to add here. I've seen some top levels of competition. I've been there and, and I've faced the same kind of uh, mental infirmities and faults and battles that I think all of our listeners have face throughout their competition experience. And so I'm happy to be here as kind of a sounding board for Jonathan's theories. I'm happy to provide my own experiences and my own background and, and let that reflect on the advice he's given. But uh, I certainly want to emphasize that there is a very stark difference in our training in the psychological fields in that I have absolutely none. And so he <laughs> always gets the upper hand when it comes to that. Yeah. I think it's an important distinction and it's it's greatly appreciated. I do agree that you have a wealth of experiences that we'll likely dive into. And unshockingly, you will have experiences that line up really closely to what people who dive into books and research this stuff say. I, I think that's consistent across high-level performers is if you ask them enough questions, they can explain to you what it feels like and and what they say it feels like when they're performing at their best is what you'll see in research. And I'll let you know, I'll let you know if that lines up, if it doesn't. But yeah, I, I think you will be surprised at how, or maybe unsurprised, like how much it lines up with what, what people say you should do. Yeah, I, I guess I'm ready to be a believer. I have some doubts in a one size fits all approach. I think 
people are so fundamentally different and their motivations are so different and their goals are so different that for me as an outsider to the profession, it's very hard to see application of these broader one-size-fits-all solutions always coming fruition. But I'm sure you will have a body of evidence that tells me I'm quite wrong in thinking I'm unique <laughs> and any different from anyone else who's trying to find <laughs> success at their competitive endeavors. So it'll be interesting to see how that whole dynamic plays out over time. I, I want to not spend too much time on our background stuff just because I want to get into the meat of what our podcast is about. And I thought for a while about the best way to introduce ourselves to our new audience and what we're going to accomplish here. And I knew we'd spend a bunch of time going through backgrounds and you know why we're here and, and what we want to do. But I thought it would be interesting. I challenged you, Jonathan, to come up with the basically the highest return on investment tips you could give to our audience in the first episode. And maybe we're shooting for the moon right <laughs> off the bat here and we should have pumped the brakes a little bit. But I basically said, come to me with the two smallest optimizations that our listeners can make right now that could make a very large difference in their performance tomorrow. And I believe you you have figured out what you want to present to us today, and I'm dying to hear it. I'm dying to apply it. And I, I want to see what we can do for our listeners right off the bat here. So what do you got for me? Yeah, it, quite the challenge to try to think of distilling everything down to just a couple things. Right. Just fix everyone's psychological yeah, problems just, in the first 10 minutes of uh, our podcast, and then we can pack it up. We won't even do any more yeah. episodes. This will be it. It's uh, it's like so cringely funny because this is how a lot of organizations treat this profession. <laughs> I believe that. So just minor disclaimer, sports psychology, the, the application of mental techniques to improve your performance is not a magic wand. I am not a wizard. I do play magic also. So in that context, I am. But in terms of fixing people's brains, the big overall important piece to understand is that like anything else you do, these are skills. And you can't just read a book or listen to something for listen to this podcast for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever, and then wake up tomorrow and just crush everything. Oh, man, that's what I was really hoping for. I thought this was going to be the <laughs> the effort that turns my life around right now. If that was the case, I would be rich. I would just go out there. And that's true. <laughs> we wouldn't be doing that's this true. podcast. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a lot more popular than you are currently. Yeah. But we'll get you there. Don't All worry. Right. Soon everyone will be knocking down your door. But no, there are, there are definitely small, let's call them optimizations you can do on the day-to-day -day that when you turn them into a habit, do pay dividends. One, it's going to sound really silly, and especially uh, you're mentioning perhaps some skepticism, which I think skepticism often brings about the best conversation with, with these topics. But you've probably heard the idea of counting your blessings or writing down what's good. Like your people's grandmas give this advice, like count your blessings, like you, you should be thankful for what, what you're given in life. I was going to say, you're sounding a little bit like my mom right now, <laughs> yeah. but I'll, I'll let you continue. It turns out mom is right. Like research supports mom there. Wow. We, research never supports my mom. So I'm <laughs> very shocked to hear this. Well, you can call her. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we have this nasty tendency as humans called the negativity bias. I don't know if you've heard about this concept at all. No, I haven't. Okay. So it, it's not all nasty. I don't want to paint an awful picture, but just as humans, we have a natural tendency to notice bad stuff. So we're going about our day 
and our brain naturally picks up on the things that are not going right or sometimes importantly, it notices danger. And in that aspect of it is huge. Like if I'm walking through my parking lot and there's like, I don't know, a grizzly bear or something out of nowhere, like it's really important for my brain to pick up on that and and like save my life. Agreed. The, <laughs> that's, that's the advice. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> no, um, but it becomes bad when we, when we think about it in terms of performances. So our brain naturally wants to notice what's not going right, what's negative. And the problem is this sometimes hones our attention in on when things aren't going right. And we start to think about things as being unchangeable. And what we know and what researchers have studied is that if you're able to train your brain to more deliberately notice what's good, it actually starts to reprogram the way your brain processes things. So by practicing just deliberately looking like, okay, what went well in my day today? You're just training your brain to at least pump the brakes a little bit when it's processing information. That's really fascinating. So I think a lot of times when I've been given this advice in the past, it's more of like a just general general gratitude. Mm-hmm. And like the gratitude is supposed to function as its own kind of reward. It, it's not in pursuit of actual more efficient brain processes. But what you're saying is that if we are taking the time to be grateful and to express gratitude and to acknowledge the good things, it's actually fundamentally changing the way we're thinking about the world around us. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So how does this apply? Like, give me an example of how you've used this in the past in helping an athlete or in, in helping you know the armed forces. Where does this really show dividends? So I think a lot of times when people hear the word optimism, they have this idea that optimism is like, everything's great. It'll always be great. Things are wonderful. Yeah. When we think about optimism in an applied sense, we're more thinking about either deliberately figuring out what's good, but often more importantly, thinking about what's controllable. And so what this does for our brain is if we can focus on those aspects of a situation that are controllable, those are our points of, of influence. That's how we can like leverage our thinking to just change what's currently happening. So if a performer just notices like an aspect of their performance and they're, they're, they realize like they have influence over a situation, that's way different than thinking like, man, I just got unlucky there. Because if I got unlucky, that doesn't do anything for me. Hopefully I get lucky next time, I guess. Right. So if you're, if you're, and I think we all know this person, if you spend any time around competitive endeavors, you know, the person who all they want to do is tell you how unlucky they got <laughs> yeah. constantly. And, and and they're not focusing on the broader picture. They're not appreciating the decisions they made that allowed their poor luck to manifest. You know, they, they went all in, in a spot where they shouldn't have, they've you know, created this image for themselves where it's easy for them to be called down or in a game of Magic the Gathering, they sequence the land wrong and they are thinking instead about the land they didn't draw on the next turn as opposed mm-hmm. to the mistake they made in the prior turn. And, and this is something that when I talk to really, really top level competitors, and again, most of my experience comes from Magic the Gathering, the difference in the way they approach their own mistakes and the things they can control 
is so dramatic. My time around top competitors has showed that this instinct is already embedded in them. They know to focus on what to control, what they can control, what decisions they've actually made that got them to the point, as opposed to the things that they cannot control, such as variants, you know, random crits, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's only so much in competition that you get to determine the outcome of. And you have a limited amount of energy. So wasting your energy, your thoughts on stuff that you can't influence maybe do it for a minute. Maybe it feels cathartic to just just get it out. But like, if your goal is really to succeed or to perform better, that, that does nothing for you to just sit there and focus on things you can't control because you just got to wake up tomorrow and hope the dice go slightly better. And there's like no, no point of leverage for you. Right, right. No way to improve randomness. <laughs> it just, right. It's just always going to be random. You can't change right. that. So you had mentioned kind of gratitude journaling when we mm-hmm. spoke earlier about this. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? Tell our listeners exactly what that entails? Because this is the part, you know, I, I mentioned my skepticism before. Mm-hmm. This this is where it really embeds for me because I think that I do a decent job of this already mm-hmm. and having to have this process built into my life isn't going to add anything. And here's where you can tell me that I'm completely wrong. I, sh- I would benefit from this type of journal- journaling. Yeah. So I think the difference is in to what you alluded to earlier that, about how people just give out this advice, like, oh, you should be, you should be grateful, like practice more gratitude. Things will be great. Pack it up, move on. I, I think in that, like if you read between the lines, people do this unintentionally or they don't do it as thoroughly as they should. And so I'm not going to say you should wake up every day and think about three things that are great in a really broad sense. Like, man, I woke up today and I have a job and I slept. Those are are really broad. They're not like, they don't give you a point in there that you necessarily controlled. But if you can really dial it down to like something really small, and, and I'm not saying they even have to be like these massive experiences of gratitude. Like if you are sitting there in the morning and you have an awesome cup of coffee and you think about how delicious it is to like be able to wake up and experience good coffee, like because you're dialing it down on something so minute specific, like that actually is putting some thought into it and your brain actually has to attend to it versus just thinking like, oh man, life is great. So So the journaling helps get you to those discrete points rather than just this broader everything's good. I feel good type right. of mentality. It's a bit more intentional. And so one uh, example of this that I recommend and man, I wish years ago, I like became an affiliate or got stock in, in this. But if you Google <laughs> five minute journal, there's a website, there's an app, I think you can pick up for a couple of dollars, or you can like order an actual physical journal. And the format that they use for it is It's splitting to morning and night. In the morning, you're just thinking about a few things that you're grateful for, a few things that would make today awesome. So part of it is you're also just setting the stage for some intentionality with what you're going to do with your day. And then a daily affirmation of just some positive aspect of yourself. So like I knew today I was going to wake up and then this evening... Uh, Brian and I were going to sit here and record this podcast. So I just thought about like, hey, I am an expert in my field and I'm just going to get on this podcast and talk about it. And that just gets my brain primed. And so that's your morning. You're starting off with just like a reflection on gratitude and some goals. And then when you get tonight, you reflect back on what are three amazing things that happened today. 
And I think the most important part, what's one thing you could have done today to make today even better? And this isn't just like what could have gone better today, but no, what could you have done? What could you have changed? Where is your influence on anything that happened that day that might have gone better? So it's it's forcing you to own up to your influence on the decisions you made. Huh. That sounds cool. You know, I, like I said, some skepticism on my part, but how about this? How about I give this kind of gratitude journaling a try for the next week? I'll come back. I'll report, you know, did I notice anything? Did it alter my mood at all? Did mm-hmm. I feel, you know, a little bit more primed to face my day and just give you my takeaways on, on what this experience has brought to my life? I, I know this is kind of putting you on the spot. Is there any kind of measurable metric you can point to that supports this process? Like, you know, are participants in a test 10% more likely to succeed after having gone undergone a week <laughs> of gratitude journal or anything like that? Any hard metrics? Because I'm kind of, I'm like, I'm part an art guy. And I'm part a math guy. So I, I am very prone to flights of fancy and I, I like <laughs> this um, more positive worldview. I'm into it. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm saying, show me some numbers that support me being positive is actually going to get me some return on my investment. Sure. So they've done a, a ton of cool studies on either positive emotion in general or optimism. So one that comes to mind with positive emotion is uh, one benefit of increased experiencing a positive emotion is you are more creative. And so they did a study with a couple groups. They gave them a list of words and they would ask them to categorize them into a certain category. So let's say they took, they they gave you a ton of words and the category was modes of transportation. Before they did this, they had one group experience positive emotions. I think it was like they showed them nice pictures or something like that. So like imagine you get put into a room and you see a bunch of like pictures of puppies and then the other room doesn't. They found that the group that experienced positive emotion was a bit more creative with how they categorized these modes of transportation. So if they got a word like camel or elevator, they would say that that was a mode of transportation. And Mm. if the group that the other group got it, maybe they put it into that category. But if they did, it was slower. So they were either slower reacting or they just weren't as creative in categorizing it. Well, I, I think you met my challenge. I think that's <laughs> a, a really good, like, uh, you know, imperial description of the return on this type of behavior. So I'm in. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot for a week. I'll come back and, and see if I have anything to report. I don't just like blindly offer this either. Like, um, so my, my wife is also a similar background to me and she and I do this every morning. We strive to do this every morning and every night. There's an occasional slip up on it and we'll call each other out. But like we even end the day with just like asking each other out loud to reflect on, you know, what were each other's amazing things. So like, and in a relationship, it also gives you just like free fodder to to talk to each other about the good stuff that happened. And that's a way better conversation than like, man, work was crappy today. Wow. That kind of hit home for me because, you know, one of the great things about my relationship with my wife is I feel like our personalities have interacted with each other over time to bring evolution into both of our lives. Like we are not the same people we were when we met initially. And I think one of the biggest changes I've seen in her, please don't take this as me like sliding her in any way. Instead, it's me putting her over because she has grown and like 
taken on so much and become a different person, I think for the better. Um, but when we, when we first met and first started interacting, I noticed she, she did a lot of that complaining about this person at work or, you know, focusing on the really negative aspects of her day. And again, I, I, I do think I have a good instinct for this stuff, for showing gratitude and, and for being in tune with it. And it was something I brought up to her. Like, I don't know that this is necessarily benefiting you to dwell on these things. Like, don't you, wouldn't you rather focus on something good that happened? Wouldn't you rather just not talk about it and, and you know, maybe let it go and, and have a more positive point of conversation? And we've been together for, oh man, it's a long time. <laughs> Like 11 <laughs> years now. Wow. And as those 11 years have gone on, she's, she's changed and she's come around to that point of view and definitely gotten to the point where I think she feels the same way I do, where there's just a lot more value in looking at the positive things and, and not dwelling on those negative interactions that you have. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's an awesome first tip. Uh, I'm going to make you give us another one though, because there's no way I'm letting you off that easy. You got to have one more <laughs> tip for our first episode. I told you we're bringing the fire in the first yeah, episode. So. That's fair. I actually, so I had other things that I had in my head that we were talking about, but I was looking at the game podcast discord earlier and this was an inspiration from there. Someone was asking me, well, we were having a conversation. I started typing out an answer and I basically got to the point where I'm like, this is really hard to explain over text, man. It would be great if I had another way to do it. And here we are. Ta -da. <laughs> yeah. um, so the gist of the conversation was talking about the jitters you feel before a performance. The context in the conversation was, I think you and Jerry were talking about what you do between rounds in a tournament or like the the feeling, the anticipation you start to feel when you know that another round is coming. And, and you can think about this in any context, but it, it's very, very, very common for, I would say just about anybody to experience some form of anxiety and that might morph a bit as they become more experienced. I, I don't know if you can enlighten us what the, the context was from that cast because I didn't get to it yet. Right, right. So so I think specifically what the Discord was talking about was I was relaying – I don't remember how we got on this point. I, I forget the initial question. But I was relaying my own experience of a time when I was competing in a pro tour and very deep into the pro tour, I was in first place either after 12th round or 13th round and – I think the majority of our listeners know what that entails, but for the non-magic players who might be joining us, that basically means you're almost a mortal lock to top eight the Pro Tour at that point. And a top eight of a Pro Tour is a incredibly significant achievement in Magic the Gathering. It's it's really what everyone strives for. It's what you do all of these smaller tournaments to lead to. Your, your entire purpose in <laughs> Magic is to get to that Pro Tour top eight. And... I was really, really close to the point where it was starting to look like a near certainty. And I talked about my anxiety manifesting in a form that I had never experienced prior to that and have never experienced since. And for me, again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Hopefully this doesn't become a running theme, <laughs> but I, I do think I have my anxiety in competition fairly well managed because I've just competed for a long time. I've been I've been through it and I, I've had the high stakes before. But in this one instance, my anxiety manifested really 
intensely and really suddenly in a desire to just play the next round. It wasn't that I was scared of the outcome. It wasn't that I was nervous about anything or I was uncomfortable. It was just, I wanted to sit down and play the next round and know where this day was taking me. I wanted to reach the end of the road. I I had no patience for the between round time anymore. And that's not something I've generally experienced before. And it was a really, really intense emotion. And I kind of didn't know how to deal with it at the time. And Spoiler alert, I I didn't make the top eight of the Pro Tour. I don't think it was related to this experience. I'm not saying it didn't play into it, but there were other extenuating circumstances that ultimately led to the decline. But it, it was incredibly intense and you know, I've never experienced anything like that before. I'm curious if outside of your emotional state, if you can recall at all what your body was doing. Did you like feel sick at all, tense, sweaty, or is it just too long ago? Yeah, I mean, it was actually uh, three years ago to the day, I believe, because a picture just popped up in my Facebook uh, feed today. I I don't remember any physical symptoms beyond, you know, just the the emotional, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, I don't recall any sickness or sweatiness or anything like that, but it was a while ago. All right, so ordinarily... And this might speak to some other competitive situations you've encountered. When people have experiences like this, they will report some range of stuff like butterflies in their stomach, tense, sweaty, cotton mouth. They feel like they have to go to the bathroom. They may feel like they have to throw up. Maybe they're a little jittery. Have you had experiences in competition or like right before a competition where where any of that stuff has popped up? I have had the the cotton mouth thing. My I, in general, when I play magic, my mouth is very, very, very dry, and I feel the need to just keep drinking water throughout the day. So all of that stuff. So the cotton mouth. Do you go into a magic match and think, you know, what would be great if my mouth was really dry right now? <laughs> no, certainly not. Okay. So all that's it's terrible. <laughs> I honestly hate it. I feel disgusted every time it happens to me. Yeah, and and it feels disgusting when people like before a, a, a big game or something feel like they have to go to the bathroom or feel like they're gonna they're vomit like or or like yeah. butterflies in your stomach. They don't feel good, and and no one's doing it intentionally. It's our body. Our body just does this automatically, and it does it for an outstanding purpose called keeping us alive. <laughs> so. What what we're experiencing there is fight or flight, which I'm sure everyone has heard of. It's it's our nervous system getting our body ready to go to either fight a threat or or flee from it, which is great if there's legitimately a threat in front of us. Right. I don't think my magic opponent was about to like rough me up or anything. Yeah, they might be casting some serious stuff at your your way, but none of those cards are going to actually hurt you. Right. Whereas if there's a lion in front of you, man, it'd be great if your body gets itself ready to go. If we if we run through these symptoms real quick, like what they're doing. So cotton mouth, any idea why you experience that? If your body's getting I, ready. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even guess. It doesn't seem useful to me if, if I'm trying to fight or survive or, you know, do any of those type of situations so, particularly well. Cotton mouth doesn't seem useful. <laughs> so cotton mouth happens because saliva in our mouth is going away because if we're about to fight for our lives, digesting whatever we just ate doesn't matter. So the reason we feel like we have to go to the bathroom or throw up or we have butterflies in our stomach is our body's pulling away all resources from digestion because eating and digesting lunch doesn't matter if we don't survive the next couple minutes. 
Hmm. Similarly, we feel tense, we feel jittery, we start sweating. So the sweating is cooling our internal organs because again, if our lungs, our heart give out, we're probably going to be lying food and we're jittering all over the place because our body sends sweet chemicals flowing because adrenaline and all that good stuff gets us going to to save our life. And it does it automatically. And the reason we experience it is because our brain can't tell the difference between a lion and a competition bills Hmm. and any type of stressor that pops up, our body naturally interprets those threats in the same way. So I guess that begs the question, can we train our bodies to recognize the difference in these two sets of threats? You're not necessarily going to be able to stop your body from jumping into that. Like fight or flight just automatically happens. But what we have socialized ourselves to do is interpret that in a way that's not conducive for performance. So like for three years ago, Brian, who's standing at the pairings board thinking like this next match, your body's interpreting that as like a threat to your life. It's not, man, I'm really stressed out and whatnot because this is a big thing. It's okay. My body's naturally doing this to me and all I can do is just go to the next match. Public speaking, I think, is consistently rated as like the number one fear above like death. And so people who are afraid of public speaking, when they're about to get up in front of a podium or something and all that starts stuff starts starts happening in their body, their brain is like, ooh, butterflies in my stomach. It's not thinking, oh, wow, my body's just doing this because I don't need to digest because that's a threat. It's thinking like, ooh, I have butterflies in my stomach because I'm not ready for this. And since I'm not ready for this, I'm probably going to suck at what I'm about to talk about. And we, we start this chain of thoughts that just doesn't get better and really just makes the situation worse. That's fascinating. So in some ways, the kind of cure or the solution is just having this conversation and acknowledging this is what's going on. This is a biological process. I need to not internalize this as any kind of weakness or failure. It's just my body doing its thing. Mm-hmm. Just like take control of the fact that look, my body's going to do this either way. There's no way I would walk into the situation and think, whoo, it'd be great if I was sweaty and really had to go to the bathroom. But if I just pump the brakes a little bit and realize my body's going to do that regardless, yeah, it's not like a, a, a magical fix that I'm going to stop my body from happening. That would be great. But you, you, if you hear accounts of tons of high performers, they even like Olympians experience these type of feelings before like an Olympic race or something, they understand that that's just part of their body getting ready to go. And if we can train ourselves to recognize that that's just our body getting ready to do what it does best, there's power in that. That's fascinating. You know, I left this out of my kind of background because it feels like a very, very long time ago, but I was also an athlete, not a world-class athlete, you know, just I'm I'm talking a high school athlete, but I was, I was good. I was an all-star football player in high school. And in those instances, like before a football game, I do remember butterflies, jitters, but in that circumstance, for whatever reason, and this is a younger, much more psychologically unprepared (laughs) me I'm talking about, but still I was able to, I feel like more effectively harness that. Like to me, that fear, that adrenaline in the football context was like an elixir I could drink from and I could harness it and use it. And, uh, you know, there were times when I was so excited to play football where it felt like I was almost on the verge of blackout. 
like just this intense swell of emotion and wanting to perform my best and and really caring about the outcome. I have to think that in the context of non-physical sports, the equation changes a little bit. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm wrong. And I'm assuming I can't harness these things in the same way. But you know, in pursuit of a physical goal, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, it seemed way easier for me to challenge that or channel that anxiety, that emotion into something positive. Whereas in a mental sport, even in something with a small physical component, like say mm-hmm. League of Legends or Street Fighter, it, it seems like it would be harder to move that to a positive. Is that a fair statement? Or am I just kind of making an excuse for the way I've, I've treated these things in the mm-hmm. past? I don't know. That's interesting. I wonder if it's part of like, I don't know how you got yourself ready before football, but if you were a person who prefers to be amped up, like maybe you just experienced that as part of the like, Ooh, let's go. It's football time. Like, and jumping up and down. I'm curious if in your lawyer life, if you ever saw this in other people. Yeah, I would. I would see it in other people before they were going into the courtroom or, you know, if they had a, a fair hearing coming up. Just to kind of clarify my courtroom experience, I, I worked in two different roles as a lawyer and as well as some like other internship type roles, but two main roles. One was at a very large law firm. And the nature of large law firms is very much removing junior associates from the courtroom setting. So a lot of my work was research and writing and things like that, and and no real points of confrontation or anything like that for me or for anyone I worked directly with. The second thing I did was I worked uh, as a lawyer for poor people. I worked for mm-hmm. legal aid, helping out people who couldn't you know afford their own legal representation. And in that context, I did do some courtroom appearance, uh, a, a lot of appearance in what's called settlement conference. I, I worked in foreclosure prevention. So I was often before a court attorney or a court referee, as they're called, and arguing my client's position. And my coworkers did the same thing, you know, be it social security hearings or a, a bunch of different situations that, you know, people without means were often exposed to. A lot of times I saw people showing physical effects from nervousness before they had to speak before a judge or before they had to speak before a hearing board, it it manifested quite often, actually. Yeah. And I imagine you also saw successful, well, either not to say that they weren't successful, but I'm sure you also saw poised or at least on the surface lawyers who were not seemingly having these effects and then watch them like perform well as lawyers. Yeah, for sure. And I would I would put myself in in that group. I generally I I never had an experience as a lawyer where I felt that kind of overwhelming anxiety or fear or emotion mm. really. It was, it was more just a a very it, it always felt like a very controlled like safe measured environment to me. Like things moved fairly slowly and there wasn't the same level of intensity and it's like there are takebacks in the legal world. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, if you say something completely damning, you you can't rewind <laughs> the clock. But for the most part, you do have opportunities to correct any failings you might have, and you know th- there are a lot of second chances, which maybe plays into my comfort level, and maybe it it assages my fears a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's two sides to it. Like one is, I think for some people, the awareness of this phenomenon our human body, the the amazing things it does might be enough. Like, okay, wow. Yeah. I'm not actually nervous. My body just is doing this thing. And for some people that might be cool. I think the other 
aspect and it's what I heard in how you're describing it. I, I imagine the courtroom wasn't necessarily a threat to you. And, and maybe it's some combination of either your belief in your skill or just understanding that you had quote unquote redos, like you reframed that to be more of a, like a challenge or an opportunity and our body responds differently to those. And so inadvertently like young, not psychologically educated, Brian was, was probably setting himself up for success there because if we see something as a challenge like our body doesn't necessarily generate that same nasty reaction. I, I think this is a, a really interesting topic. I think you chose well as, yes. you know, kind of a, a quick hitter topic, because if, if you're right and just the simple analysis and the simple consideration of this can give people peace, I think it has the potential to make a dramatic dramatic and quick impact on their performance. If you if you start coming to terms with your anxiety, I do think you can see immediate benefits from doing so. Yeah. And I think it speaks to this way, 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 way bigger topic of self-awareness that I couldn't possibly dive into in five minutes. Oh, we'll yeah. get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. That's one of my favorite yeah. topics to talk about. We're going to talk lots about self-awareness. Step one. <laughs> right. I, th I think we have a billion great topics that we're excited to talk about. Um, like I said, no training in this field, but I find it all fascinating. I'm really excited to go down this road to, to hit all these topics I've wanted to talk with someone about for years, maybe find some improvement for myself. I think that'd be great. But more importantly, provide a lot of improvement for all of our listeners. I think this is going to be a project that can really help people out. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. Me too. All right, so why don't we uh, queue up Foreigner and get out of here, <laughs> and we'll be back next week. <laughs>